Each generation brings new recruitment challenges for the Army. That's why the Army is constantly seeking fresh messages to deliver through its marketing channels. Maybe you remember Be All You Can Be or The Army of One. Here with the latest recruiting challenge in the Army's newest marketing campaign, the Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing, Major General Alex Fink. General Fink, good to have you with us. It's great to be with you, Tom. Thank you. And before we get into this latest campaign, I guess maybe people didn't know that there was an enterprise marketing office for the Army as something distinct from recruitment. So just tell us about what the office does first. You bet. Army Enterprise Marketing is a relatively new organization. As it's currently organized, uh, it stood up about three years ago. Of course, the Army's had a functional marketing organization for many years. And you mentioned the older campaigns, Be All You Can Be and Army of One. So clearly they were involved in that. We took a fresh look at marketing and the role of marketing in the Army and really what you can do within the whole discipline in today's environment. The last organization was designed and implemented before the invention of the iPhone, before social media as we know it today. And so about five or six years ago, the Army started looking at how do we basically reform the marketing organization to reflect both the media consumption habits of today's youth, as well as the technology that's available within the marketing sciences. And so this organization sort of evolved from that. Marketing organizations have been known as having really great creative folks, clever ads that you stick on TV, but today it's much more of a, a science. We have more data scientists on our team than we do creative folks because of just the, the nature of how you do marketing in a digital environment. And so we moved it to Chicago. We wanted to be at a place where we had access to great talent. Chicago is one of the sort of the marketing destinations for those aspiring to be in, in careers in marketing. So we, we, you know, we do hire some you know, number of civilians into our team and some marketing. And so Chicago is good for that. But we also designed a new functional area within the Army. Many people may be familiar with public affairs officers or force managers. Or I know hundreds of them. <laughs> Yeah, sure you do. We actually developed a new functional area for marketing officers. So we started to grow that population as well. We're around 50 officers that we've assessed over the last three years into this program. And so they also make up part of that staff. So we have a very healthy mix of civilian professionals, Army officers who are developing into marketing officers for us, and they'll stay in this for their careers. So we happen to have an agency that's located here in Chicago as well. So that plays a role also in you know, having real crisp, clean engagement between us, our agency, and the, the contracting vehicle that we use. Yeah, so no more 30-second spots on my three sons anymore. We've come a long way from that, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you, yes and no. We do have 30-second spots, but you might see them on Adult Swim or Comedy Central. There's an evolution to this, how we think about marketing you have to look at this kind of over a period of years. And so we started out a very data performance focused, putting messages in very precise places, really only targeting those folks who we thought, you know, we could convert to become a lead and then eventually sign a contract, join the army. You know, and as we've really developed that, that what I call that data infrastructure and the market research foundation that we have, and we really understand youth at a much deeper level than we did three years ago, it does give us the ability to turn that dial a little bit and start having broader messages. And so I think in the future, you'll see a little bit more of us across what we call linear television, 
even in some of the sports we've kind of gone away from a little bit, but for very specific reasons. Those specific reasons have given us the flexibility to potentially turn that dial and, and be a little more broader in our messaging. We're speaking with Major General Alex Fink, Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. This has really become a data-driven exercise, especially as recruitment becomes more challenging because of the changing population, changing attitudes. It sounds like you really need to get deep into very fine-grained data about prospects in order to be able to reach them effectively? That's right. You know, everybody's coming from a different place in terms of their background, their knowledge of the Army, their inclination to join. And it's important that we understand where those folks are. And we have a segmentation that we use. We've got 11 different segments. We can model this thing down to the zip code level. There's 53.8 million youth between the ages of 16 and 28 that we have within this model. And so we have a pretty good feel for, you know, what's important to them, their values. Of course, we understand gender, demographics, where they live, but we also understand their media consumption habits and what appeals to them. And that's important in a modern marketing organization, particularly when, you know, we've got to live within a budget too. And so we can't be everything to everybody. We've got to decide, you know, who we're going to go after and what's the best thing for the Army. Sure. Everybody has a smartphone. Nobody has an offset wrench anymore, I guess. (laughs) I guess I'm dating myself. But let's get into this current campaign. You're looking to make sure that you can bring in people that are officer bound. Tell us how this program, what it's aimed at and where it will play out. Sure. And so this really goes back a couple of years. We typically don't just get an idea while we're in the elevator in the morning and decide to create a campaign a few weeks later. These are things that are really informed with the needs of the Army, what we're hearing from Army senior leadership. So this one started way back in March of 2020. Literally, we had our first meeting pre-lockdown days, at least, and what we needed to do to think about the officer corps. And when we think about that, we actually take a very long-term view. You know, an officer career, the officer path to service is, you know, developing those folks is a much different way than necessarily our enlisted path to service. And we looked at the colonels and the general officers of 2050. They're going to be, you know, choosing to go to college now, right? And what is America going to look like in 2050? What do we want our officers to look like? And I don't mean that necessarily, I mean, I mean that in diversity, but in all aspects of diversity, not just how we traditionally think about it and making sure that we have just the right folks uh, at those senior levels that can ascend to the very senior levels of the Army. And so that's, you know, that's how we start. And then we back into this. So what do we need to do now? in order to do that. And so that's where the inspiration behind the campaign, then it's all about, okay, so how do we, how do we attract those, those college bound youth? I'm happy to, happy to go into that as well. Right. But the objective is to attract college bound youth to ROTC specifically. Yes. I would say it is a, we, we think about that as far as a um, commissioning source, somewhat agnostic because it really is supporting officers no matter how you get to that route. But ROTC produces the most officers for the Army, followed by West Point, and then a distant third and fourth would be OCS and direct commission. Uh, But ROTC has the lion's share of the officers that we commission each year. And one of the challenges we have, you know, is the fact that youth just don't understand the Army. And they've heard of ROTC, maybe they had JROTC in their high school but they don't make a distinction between officer path to service versus enlisted path to service. We're starting with this idea amongst youth is that it's, I either can do 
army or I can go to college. And what we're trying to do is say that actually you can do it and, right? You can do the army through ROTC and go to college, still have the same sort of rich experience that everybody else has in college. But you also can come out of this, you know, with a job, with, uh, you know, executive level leadership opportunities, training, you know, an investment in you. And so there's, it's really kind of a college plus idea. Major General Alex Fink is Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. We'll post this interview along with a link to the new recruiting videos at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Later this week, we'll hear more from General Fink about the Army's non-officer recruiting challenges. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today 
that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way 
to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 